Welcome. You're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I'll interview data leaders and architects like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn or the founder of Data Kitchen and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com slash survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey, Data Nation. I'm really excited to welcome our next guest on the mic, Sakate Saro. Sakate is the co-founder of Nexla, which is a unified data operations platform that allows you to integrate, transform, and monitor your data at scale. Prior to starting Nexla, he was the founder of a successful mobile startup that went through acquisition, IPO, and grew into a multi-million dollar business. Sakate, welcome to the show. Thank you, Travis. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, of course. Can you describe a little bit more about your previous experience and what led you or what gap did you see in the market to start Nexla? Absolutely. So Travis, I'm actually an engineer by background, several years in some startups and many years that I had been on the compute side of the world for a while and then started this company in the mobile ad serving side. And the mobile ad serving or the ad serving business in general is a lot of data, billions of records. And we've seen a lot of data tech come out of advertising technology companies like Google, Facebook, Yahoo, and so on for that reason. In the course of building my previous company, we ended up building a data system that was processing over 300 billion records of data a day. We were getting data from over 500 different partners, and we were using it very effectively for machine learning. Um on auction pricing and stuff like that. And this is this was between 2009 to 2014. And once the company went public and I was thinking about the next problem to solve, I really felt that, look, I didn't really feel like I'm much of an advertising person, but I love the data part of it. And, and I was thinking that, look, everybody is trying to use data more efficiently. 2014, we're thinking more people should do machine learning. It wasn't very clear at the time. But that got me into thinking like, hey, what problems will people face when they are doing applying data in more places? And that got me into starting Nexla. Build a data platform so that people can bring data to more applications and more people can work with data. That was the founding principle behind Nexla. What are the main use cases of Nexla? Because I guess it's not like it's a broad general tool. Yeah, Nexla is indeed a pretty broad general tool. Going back to the problem what we felt was that, look, there is a variety of data out there and some of it is inside the company, some of it is external in your ecosystem of customers, partners, and so on. So the challenge for us was that if the amount and variety of data is going to keep increasing, but more and more people want to work with data, then clearly there needs to be tech that will take all that complexity and present the data in a usable fashion to this person who's not going to hopefully write code for that. So that was the first thinking behind it. And we're like, oh, that's essential for scaling. Scaling any business operationally will need that. So Nextla became, you know, became the sort of layer in between to say, what are the things that we need? We'll need to be able to 
find the data. If you find the right data, we'll need to integrate it, which means read or write from different systems. Once we can read that data, we may need to prepare it and make it useful for us. And once you know we have that and once things are running, we clearly want to monitor these things because that will keep running all the time. So the thinking was that uh, all these pieces happen need to happen together. And yes, there were tools out there back in 2014, 2015. There were tools out there, but we felt that very fragmented and they were not really meant for anybody who's not technical. So it became, how do we do all of that? How do we bring the more modern paradigms of streaming and real-time data? And, and that gave Nextla its core capabilities. We call it unified data operations, bringing together integration, preparation, monitoring of data in an operational way, in the sense that can scale for your team and your organization. And what are what does your typical customer look like? Are they a large enterprise customer? Or what type of systems are they integrating with? Nextla currently works mostly with mid to large organizations. We went for that with the thinking that we need to solve the complex use cases of a large organization, but do that in an easy-to-use, no-code system. And once we are able to do that, we can bring that tech to the broad masses. So our customers today look like modern companies like an Instacart or a Poshmark, which are big public or large companies, to some of the older companies like some large financial institutions, to big retailers, Bed Bath Beyond, to marketing technology companies like Liaram. So we have a pretty broad set of customers across a few different sectors, mainly e-commerce, finance, a few in education, and some in marketing. And more specifically, where does this fit into like your modern data architecture? It, it Does it take the place of your integration tools like Kafka and other, or does it pick up from those or... What does that look like? Yeah, we do provide integration capabilities, which are multimodal. So integration in Nextla covers a broad set, right? So we're able to support ETL, ELT, reverse ETL, streaming integration, API integration. In many cases, we are able to support the same use cases that you might be using multiple different applications for through the Nextla system. We are able to leverage a lot of existing technology people have. So if they have existing Kafka or Spark, Nextla is able to use that and leverage that in this in certain cases as well. And then we interoperate with a lot of the existing enterprise technology. You may have Airflow for orchestration. We connect to that. You may have um, a cataloging tool. We are able to pump information and populate data sets into that. Uh, you may have CICD tools and you can do dev and production pipelines on Nextla while leveraging those CICD tools like Jenkins, for example. So we interoperate with a lot of en enterprise technology and then we bring together a whole bunch of data capabilities uh, alongside that. Okay, great. So I guess just a fictitious example, let's say I'm a large enterprise company. My current architecture consists of Kafka for some real-time streaming. Maybe I'm doing some batch ETL with Azure DataFact, deploying that with Azure DevOps. Maybe I have a data catalog integrated with that. It's all going into a data warehouse. Would Nextla integrate into all those existing it sounds like it can integrate into those existing systems but it sounds like it can also replace some of those probably yeah. depending on the use case yeah yeah absolutely you can come into the next slide ui and you can point us to your various uh, data systems that you have batch systems streaming systems api databases file systems and so on and we are able to connect with those systems um, for data we're able to observe the data, we're able to organize that data into automated entities that we call as next sets. These are like data products that are ready to use. So we are able to do all of that, automatically generate these next sets, and then you can point us to where you want to use the data. I want to use the data in a warehouse.
warehouse, I want to use it in an API. And we can connect those systems, we can run those data flows. If you are a large enterprise, you may be running things on-premise and you may be one of those rare cases who don't, who for whom Nextla as a SaaS service is not sufficient. And you may deploy some parts of Nextla in your infrastructure. In that case, you may say, hey, I already have Kafka, you know, can you just leverage that? Yes, we can do that. Some of our customers will point to Kafka as a source. Some of them have said, oh, I might, I get a lot of data in files. Can you consume that data validated and then push it into my Kafka stream internally? And yeah, we do that as well. So we end up interconnecting systems of different velocities. But yeah, if you have existing technology, we may be hooking into that as well. And you mentioned next sets. Can you provide a little bit more details about what does a typical next set look like and when you would use them? Yeah, as I mentioned, on one hand, you have a lot of variety of complexity of data. On the other hand, you have a user who shouldn't have to write code. So then in between, what we do is our job is to observe the data from different systems and organize them into these logical data products, right? We call them next sets. Um, and these are auto-generated in our system. You come in as a user, you find next sets are in there, they have been detected, and you say, oh, I want to work with product data. There's a product next set. There's inventory data, transactions data, whatever data you're working with, your CRM data. So those come out as data products. We call them next sets. They're auto-generated. And, and then as a user, then you don't care whether that data came from a stream or a database or a file or it was JSON or it was Parquet. You just care about the next set. It has an interface to it. You can see it in a UI. You can observe the data. You can decide what you want to do with it. Yes, you use them all the time, but these are these logical entities that just give a consistent interface to data for our end user. And then these also become entities that people can share with each other. I can say, oh, I had this raw next set. I processed that and I created a new next set or a new data product out of that. And now I'm going to give you access so that you can do, you know, maybe build a report or use it somewhere that, yeah. So I guess, are, are next sets typically a push model from the next sets or a pull? If I'm Actually, a consumer. Multimodal. So what happens is, let's say you point us to a database table or a query or some such, you know, thing and say, that's my source of data. And yeah. and then the next set will be detected. You can then transform it or enrich it. It becomes a new next set, which is the resulting outcome of that uh, processing. And then you can say, I want to point this next set to an API. Now, if you're pushing to the API, the data is flowing left to right and that's going in. That's a push model. That next set that you created, you it also has its own API. If you called that API, then it becomes pull. You will call the okay. API. It will then in turn call the underlying query, rewrite it, fetch the appropriate data, transform it, and give it to you back in real time. So on the first flow, you might be running in Kafka through a stream pushing to an API. The second flow runs through a real-time engine and gets you data as a response to an API call. So we do run this in a multi-mode. From a stream perspective, how does that, if I have a next set that is processing stream data, how would that work? Because I feel the messages you get would just be a certain window of time. Then it works at an event level, right? Let's say the source of data okay. is a webhook or a Kafka stream. Then we, the, then data is being consumed. The next set is basically a set of instructions and a set of knowledge. It says, this is where the data comes from. This is what it looks like. This is how the schema has evolved over time. These are the characteristics. These are the users who can consume it. You know, this is the access log to it. That's the sort of information. When the actual movement of the data happens, as far as the stream is concerned, then the underlying execution engine is saying, hey, 
Based on this, the source was here. Let me consume the data. Could be a file, could be a queue, whatever, right? And then it flows through a stream and says, okay, based on this, I should run these transformations. Based on this, the outcome should be posted here to this system. So that's the execution time or the runtime of the thing. What we do is that, what's the access pattern? Is it a pull pattern? Okay, that execution needs to go in a real-time flow. Is this a push pattern? for you know a certain amount of data, oh, that execution pattern should go on a Kafka stream. Or is it a ton of data flow just replicating? Maybe it should go on a Spark. So that's the determination our system does uh, on the runtime. It sounds like it's a no-code experience, but when you're doing transformations, is that SQL or what does that look like? Yeah, it is, it is a no-code transformation with low-code extensions. So we were very okay. uh, inspired by the Excel model where... In Excel, you have a lot of built-in functions, but then if you're an advanced user, you could write macros, have your custom menus and, and things like that. So we created a model where there are built-in functions that you can call. They're available in a very nice drop-down UI and you just pick them and it shows you what the transformation would look like to so preview that. That library of functions is extensible. So anybody in your team who writes Python or JavaScript can add to that library. So that's the model that happens as a user. You just see the UI and you benefit from that. Most of this is, in many cases is not necessarily SQL. But we're right now in process of introducing SQL as well in that sort of mechanism where you can say you can do a SQL query as well. For the user, again, it will be transparent where our system will, depending on what the underlying data is, does it need to keep a window? Does it need to have a temporary data store somewhere or whatever to run that SQL query? We'll evaluate that particular transformation instruction. And from a data quality perspective, what um, type of metrics or monitoring are happening on top of the next sets? Yeah, so the next sets are actually informed by a lot of metadata. And this is metadata that is coming from the system, such as if it's a file system, then what is the timestamp of the file and what how much, what was the size of the file? What was the schema in this file? Do multiple files have the same schema? Has the schema changed over time? Columns being added and stuff like that. Within the schema, oh, there is a price attribute. How did that change over time? What are the characteristics of that? So we capture a lot of signals and then across systems. On an API, it's a different thing. What API call got it or what was the table that got the data and all that stuff. So we, we track a lot of that meta. It helps us to create that next edge to be more rich. But then it mm -hmm. also uses the signal to say, hey, your data normally comes at 4 p.m. and we see 20 million records, but today it seems to be late. Or the data volume has gone up a lot or it's not enough. Or, hey, this attribute used to have data which looked like an email ID, but now it's missing that. And then users add their own validations and say, oh, I want to make sure that this field is always populated or this field matches this regex or has this range of values. So it's a combination of system-determined validation rules and, and user-defined that's become the, the quality framework. And then we give the necessary notification and alerts. And one of the things we do is also we pump this data out to your favorite monitoring tool, like a data dog or whatever you use so that you can monitor your data alongside everything else that you're monitoring. And can you describe what metadata can be difficult to capture? You mentioned it's a key ingredient to monitoring kind of these pipelines and supporting Nexla. What metadata can be difficult to capture or just metadata in general that organizations are not capturing today, but they should be for their data pipelines? Yeah, first of all, 
The first piece of metadata I feel like that comes into question for people who come into an organization is what all data do we have, right? <laughs> or, or I'm trying to solve this problem. Where is this data? So that's always a classic question. And we know multiple tools are trying to solve that cataloging problem. So I guess I'll pause you there because yeah. we could talk about that forever. What data catalogs on the market do you think are powerful or most organizations are using? So we come across quite a few of the commercial data catalogs among our customer base. As I said, we work mostly with medium to large size companies. We do find that most data catalogs today have limited connector capability. So they are able to catalog databases and tables because there's a lot of metadata in those systems, but struggle when that data is in CSVs and Excel files and in APIs or Kafka streams and stuff like that. There is a limitation on, on that front because the integration guys went and built a lot of connectors. The catalog guys did not necessarily go and solve the connector problem. So there is a limitation that we see in that world on the metadata. We consistently come across two, Colibra and Alation. And we see, we see Colibra in a lot of financial services organizations because it has certain cataloging as well as governance capabilities, which regulated industries care about. Yeah. Those two are the most common, I would say. Yep. Um, and then from an ingestion standpoint, what patterns should organizations be defaulting to change data capture versus bulk versus stream? I know a lot of it depends on use cases, but do, do you see that if your source operational system supports CDC, should you be using that for most of the times? So what are you seeing in that area? The two things that I'm seeing, one is that you need CDC-like capabilities in many more systems. CDC has generally been within the scope of the database world. But when we look at a lot of FTP data that goes around, that's still the truth today, right? There's a lot of stuff that goes around in FTP. And we try to layer in CDC on top of that, which files are new, which files have changed and stuff like that. So there's a need for that, for sure, to track like what data has changed. On the other side, also see a lot of systems that today are batch oriented, but you can imagine that they should be streaming in future. So just to give an example, look at all the delivery companies, right? They usually get batches of data from stores, what products are available today that they can list and sell and pick up. But during the pandemic, we saw that certain products would go out of stock within a few hours because there was high demand for that. And you suddenly realize that, oh, I wish that system was more real-time. Uh, or uh, But it's so hard to change because there are multiple systems across multiple companies that are connected in together to make that data happen. And it is set up that, okay, end of the day, at this time, we'll deliver you the data and then you will consume it and use that. What organizations should I think about is how can they use, create the framework so that over time, they can more easily move to those patterns at the right time. And we are often surprised how some things we think should always be batched turn out to have a good use case for streaming. Sure, absolutely. And wrapping up, What's been your biggest failure in the data space? Oh, that's a good question. I think the variety of data that just comes around is just literally infinite. And yeah. I think making things easy to use where people are not intimidated by the data, they see data as a friend, as something that helps them run the job better. You could be in HR and you could say, I can do better analytics of my recruiting system or whatever your function be. is a hard problem. I think, I think we as an industry, us as a company, everybody should see it as a failure when people are not able to use that data 
uh, just because we haven't made it accessible or usable for them. So I think that's a challenge for us, but there's a lot of good signs that we are heading in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you see data architectures hitting over the next two to five years? Yeah, you know, clearly there's a new pattern that has emerged in the last few years of an ELT model where the data warehouse sort of becomes a central piece and, and that becomes a way to work with data. We do see, as I said, more streaming and real-time use cases emerge as well. I'm also seeing that the exchange of data you know, across teams, users, or use of data from multiple places together is is a growing pattern. My bet is that when two companies work together, they'll naturally say, hey, there's data that we need to collaborate on and work on. I do think that the architecture is heading towards a more multimodal architecture, which is that, hey, depending on the use case, it may be ELT or a streaming or an API or a data as a service or whatever. But how can we the architecture needs to have a little bit more abstraction, if you ask me, wherein at the user level, we should have abstracted that enough that they don't care about or know about the underlying sort of mechanics, but they're benefiting from that. The other architecture pattern that we are betting in a big way on ourselves is the revisiting of how connectors are designed. As I mentioned earlier, limitation of every data tool needs to connect with data system. That's a given. And unless we are able to crack that connector challenge, we can't keep creating 100, 200, 500 connectors. And we have taken an approach to that by abstracting those entities. But we think there's a lot of innovation to come in that world. And who are Nextla's main competitors? Yeah, I think uh, I would say that for many things, we think that our biggest competitor eventually is the, um, I'll build it myself. And I have nothing against that. I'm an engineer. I've done this myself. This is great, but I want to build it myself. But we are seeing a maturing of that thinking with that. If the data challenges are taken care of, then I can focus my engineering skills on, hey, what makes better logistics or what makes you know, better customer satisfaction or a better feature, a better product. We do overlap in our features with many tools out there in the ecosystem, but there are so many problems that I think people of these will coexist over time. You will see us replacing a bunch of integration tools, uh, supplementing a bunch of monitoring tools, improving upon a bunch of data prep capabilities and so on. We most often get people to switch to us from companies like Stitch and Fivetran. They're a good introduction to people to easy to use. When they get into more complex problems, they often come to us because we give them the next step after that. The other big competitor in the enterprise world, as I said, we work with a lot of large enterprises. We have routinely taken over data challenges from Informatica, Ab Initio, MuleSoft, Tibco, and those companies. Yep. We end up being as powerful but a whole lot easier to work with. What's next for Nextla? The next steps for Nextla are, A, make, we're making our product available to more early stage companies. Some of the startups have been using our product. We're making it available gradually into, hey, come try it and just buy it yourself. You don't have to talk to us. It's very simple to use and onboard. So that's one part that we are doing. There's a lot of uh, things in Nextla that are collaborative by nature, and we are extending that to a point where it becomes a community thing. I configured Nextla to work with this really complex API, but I can share that as a template, as a prepackaged button that other people in the community can use. Mm -hmm. Let's say I work with healthcare data that's useful, cleaned it up, you know, transformed it, you can share it as a next set broadly. So there are many aspects of Nextla that will extend from what is inside an enterprise and inside a team to what is overall broader into the community. So that's the other part that you'll see. What's the pricing structure look like? 
Yeah, it's entirely usage-based pricing, how much data do you process. That said, we have customers who process multiple billion records a day. So that's something that obviously goes down as people use it more. And we do bucket our users in three sort of segments or starter team and enterprise based on their feature set. Yep, great. And do you have a favorite data book or resource that you would recommend to the listeners? I recently read the 100-page machine learning book, and I thought it was amazing in how nicely it summarized something for for practitioners. So I really like it. Now, is that book more for beginners or...? I think, yeah, I think any beginner can go look at it. It does go deep enough into math if you like that, but mm-hmm. gives you a good quick framework of many things that people would talk about around you and you immediately have context to make sense of it and understand that, yeah. It was 100 pages? 100 page machine. It is, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Sounds like my type of book. And then if listeners want to connect with you afterwards or learn more, where should they go? Yeah, I'm directly reachable. Uh, Saket, S-A-K-E-T at nextla.com. And of course, come by our website and you can reach us through there too, nextla.com. Awesome. Thanks, Saket, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Thanks for listening to Building the Backend. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.